We welcome you to the media ministries of the Gathering Church in the Countryside YMCA of Mainville. As we love the Lord and each other, we're trusting that God would use us to plant a church in every YMCA around the world. To this end, would you join us? We meet on Sundays at 10 a.m. and in community groups throughout the week. As you listen to this resource, our prayer is that your love for Jesus would grow deep and your love for others would be seen and heard. Prayer. Father God, Lord, we come before you this morning in a nation where we can worship you freely, where we can gather together, Lord, without fear, Lord. We have brothers and sisters around the world, Lord, who are hiding in their homes and worshiping together, Lord. Some of them aren't even allowed to have copies of your word. And we lift them up in prayer, and we thank you for the freedoms that you've given us, Lord. Yet, as we come to this Independence Day, we live in a deeply divided nation, Lord, a nation that uh, has turned away from you. Father, we know that your spirit is powerful, that you can bring us as a nation back to repentance. And Lord, so we make that our prayer this morning. As we open your word today, Lord, I pray that your spirit will work in each of our hearts. God, that your word would go out and not return void. Father, that today we would learn more about you in our relation to you, Lord, that you would gain glory. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. You can go ahead and turn to Psalm 131 in your Bible and just kind of Hold it right there. It's going to be a minute before I get to it, but um, give you a chance to to find it. So, uh, my wife, Kristen, and I we uh, we welcomed our first child into the world a little over ten years ago. I, I remember how excited I was to be a dad. Uh, I remember. Uh, going to almost every ultrasound appointment that they would let me go to. I think Kristen was probably tired of me coming to them after after a certain period of time. Um, I read the expecting books, um, all, you know, thick expecting books that they had. Uh, I even read a book from a doctor called Eat, Sleep, Poop. And that, that was probably the be- actually the best uh, practical book I read. <laughs> Uh, on parenting. Um, I went to the child birthing class with Kristen. I, I was determined to be a good dad from the start, or at least I, 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 what I thought a good father should be. I also was determined to be a good husband and do what I thought was, was quote unquote, my part. Um, so we had the preparation done, we had a setup in place and a plan in place uh, to welcome our son into the world. We set the nursery up uh, for both looks and functionality. You know, there was a cute little theme and decorations. Uh, There's nice nursery nursery furniture. Of course, we had a crib, a dresser, a changing table, uh, all that. And of course, you know, we had to have it had to have it matching. Uh, We had a glider in there to to sit on, and a little mini fridge next to the glider to store 
uh, to store mom's milk and some water for us. And then it, it also held the bottle warmer on top and, and uh, was effectively a nightstand for us. Uh, everything we needed was in that nursery. In addition, we had a plan. Uh, Kristen and I divided the night in half. In theory, our thought was that if one of us took half the night and the other took the other half of the night, we had a good shot at getting some REM sleep. At least, you know, it's, that's what we thought. <laughs> uh, when our son would cry and it was my, my turn on duty, um, I, I'd go in and I'd have this little system as part of the plan. I would start the bottle in the warmer and then change his diaper while it was warming up. And when he was done being changed, I would feed him, burp him, and put him back to sleep. Uh, I was pretty proud of that preparation, that setup, and that plan. And my aim was to get in and get out and get back to sleep myself. Uh, it wasn't long before I learned that the setup and the plan really didn't matter. Uh, it took me a little while longer to realize my definition of a good father and a husband needed to change. There were two very different nights that I still remember vividly, even 10 years later. Uh, the first of those two nights, it was awful. Um, our son would not stay asleep. During my shift, he woke up over a dozen times. Um, and it was, I, it was getting kind of frustrating. I didn't know what to do. Um, I didn't want to ask my wife for help, so rather than disturb her, I took and turned the, the baby monitor off, grabbed my pillow, grabbed a blanket, and went and tried to sleep next to the crib, thinking, well, at least if I was there, sort of next to him, he might, he might sleep. And he didn't. Um, and I, I just began to grow more frustrated I didn't understand why everything that I'd worked so hard to set up, all that planning, all that preparation, I, the whole system, it wasn't working. This kid was not happy, uh, and I was deeply frustrated. Nothing I tried to do to get him to sleep worked. He just wouldn't stop crying. And all I could think about was how bad I wanted to go to sleep. That was my sole thought. So exhausted and at my wit's end, I pray God would just let him sleep the rest of the night so I could get some sleep. It was actually a, a pretty evil prayer. I, I didn't pray in dependence to God. I didn't pray out of concern for my, my son. I was begging God to do something that I wanted with no regard for his glory or well-being no regard for my son's well-being. The prayer was about me and only me. Now, it's not wrong to go to God when we're desperate, and I was certainly desperate. However, if we're going to ask something in Jesus' name, it shouldn't be from a prideful place and without regard for God or others. I had failed and I was angry about it, God, however, granted both my son and I sleep that night. He answered the prayer. A short while after that prayer, a 36-year-old grown man and an infant newborn cried themselves to sleep. I woke up with some of the sleep 
that I had prayed for, but I, I was not rested. A month or so later, we hit a similar stretch of the night, but my response this time was very different. I didn't just desire to change my son, feed him, burp him, and put him back in the crib as fast as I could so I could get myself back to sleep. Instead, in the still, small, quiet hours of that night, I gave my son a soft kiss on the head and held him close to my chest, wrapped him snugly in my arms, and prayed over him as I rocked the glider back and forth gently. I prayed fervently over him. I prayed he would come to know Jesus as his Lord and Savior. I prayed he would grow up to be a man after God's own heart. I prayed God would provide a godly woman to be his wife one day. I prayed he would work to build God's kingdom with all his heart, soul, and mind. I prayed God would grant Kristen and I the strength and wisdom to be good parents. The sense of peace and contentment I felt while praying that night is beyond words. I still hold this, this moment very fondly and in awe. It was the moment I began to understand more about being a dad and a husband than all the books, setups, and plans could ever afford me. I was completely dependent upon God, and I was at peace. Even though I didn't get the sleep I could have that night, I did find rest that night. David describes a peace like the one I experienced in the second of these two very different nights in our text today. If you'd stand with me, we'll read Psalm 131. I think we can put it on the screen for you too if you don't have a, have a Bible. The Song of Ascents of David. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. But I have calmed and quieted my soul. Like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. That's the word of the Lord. You may be seated. In verse 3, David tells Israel to hope in the Lord. As Americans, we look forward tomorrow to celebrate the independence of our nation. But as I prayed earlier, there is a lot of despair and division in our country. There is very little hope. This week, I read a poll that found that over 77% of the people surveyed, 77% of our countrymen, feel the country is on the wrong track. It's been over 70% for a month. And with the exception of two years since 1971, only twice have Americans felt the country was on the right track in the majority. Now we're faced with constant news of gas and grocery prices rising, Supply chain issues, such as baby formula shortages, violent crime increasing, wars abroad, and discord with our country's institutions. It has taken a toll on Americans. Now, to be clear, I'm not here to talk politics today. This is a message on hope and the reward of hope. 
Right now, hope seems lost to many people on both sides of the political aisle in our country. Despair and anger rule the heart of our nation. Our hope in the institutions of man to adequately govern us, to provide us with life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness is dim. Even after the occasional spark of good news, as a nation, we are not experiencing hope. Our souls are not calm. They are not quiet. As individuals, we're not experiencing a lot of hope either. We find our peace robbed frequently in our days, even in the mundane, let alone things too great and too marvelous for us. A lot of us have days where we feel like our tank is empty by the time 9 a.m. rolls around. We're tired. Things aren't going the way we planned. We're frustrated. We had a view of what our day was going to look like, and it seems like the instant we turned off the alarm clock, one thing after the another is derailing our plans. It could be our kids forgetting to mention some monumental need right before we get in the car uh, to leave the house. It could be a work email or phone call that just put everything you plan to accomplish today on the back burner. By the, night, by the time night comes along, we're exhausted and lament the fact that tomorrow is likely to be a rinse, wash, and repeat of today. And we're talking about just the plans for the day. We also frequently look to the trajectory of our lives, and we're not satisfied. As Dwight L. Moody once said, it's like trying to catch a shadow. Our souls are not calm. They are not quiet. In all the despair around us, and at times within us, hope remains a powerful force to calm and quiet our souls. So what is hope? What do we hope in and why? How do we calm and quiet our souls? Is this just a temporary feeling or is it something more permanent? These are questions from Psalm 131 we're going to explore this morning. Um, the, the title, I think Jess has got this information up there as well. The title of this sermon is The Satisfied Soul. And our timeless truth or sermon in a sentence is hope in the Lord produces humility, contentment, and a desire to share our hope with others. This passage is broken out in two main parts. Uh, it starts with, O Lord, and it ends with, O Israel. And likewise, this message will have two main points, the first being experiencing hope, and the second being encouraging hope. So let's get started. You guys thought I was already started, huh? So let's, let's begin first by discussing experiencing hope. Let's first begin experiencing hope uh, by defining it. The hope we're talking about today is not in the vein of, I hope the Bengals win the Super Bowl this coming season. And believe me, I'm, I'm hoping that. Try not to hit the mic there. Um, it's not a, I hope to get that promotion at work. It's not, I hope the kids in school like me this year. There's nothing wrong with these. However, they are temporary and don't satisfy the deepest needs of our heart. The Bengals could win the Super Bowl, and the very following season, we will have the same feeling again. We, today, are talking about a lasting hope, a hope that transcends all earthly situations and suffering. 
The Hebrew word for hope used in verse 3 is yahel. And I spent a lot of time practicing how to say that. Um, this, this word, Hebrew, it really creates a picture for us of someone who is waiting for an extended period of time for an expected result. In other words, hope is to wait with certainty during the situation in which you find yourself and trusting in its an eventual resolution. Hope is waiting while looking forward. It's confidence in the goodness of God. It's a blessed sense of assurance of something yet to be that captures your heart. Now, waiting for anything today in modern life is, you know, it's just not heard of, right? We're, we're a, a, a group of people that will tear down and rebuild entire cell networks so an app on our phone will load a few seconds faster. We just, uh, we just don't like to wait. But for David, who wrote this psalm, uh, that was an entirely foreign concept to him. He both waited patiently in hope and was satisfied in the waiting. So in the famous story of David and Goliath, David is effectively accused of pride by his older brother. When he first gets to the battlefield, later on, Saul accuses David of desiring to overthrow him, so David become king himself. Both of these accusations were false, and verse 1 of our text repudiates them. In 1 Samuel 13, 14, Samuel refers to David as a man after God's own heart. I think a lot of us have probably heard David referred to as a man after God's own heart. Have we ever thought about what that means? Why call David a man after God's own heart? The three verses that we're going to look at today show us how David was a man after God's own heart. There's a poetic movement in them, and the first verse starts the movement, and it talks about how David experienced hope and humility. So let's read Psalm 131.1 again. I think we got it up there. It says, O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. David is addressing God in the first two verses. And in this first verse, we see three attributes of, of David, all centered around humility. And it's beautiful. Humility is not bragging, you know, just trying not to brag about yourself, uh, which is artificially inflating your worth over God and others. It's not putting yourself down, which is artificially lowering your worth beneath what God had created you to be. Neither of these two things are true acts of humility. True humility is about having a proper understanding of one's own worth in relation to God's worth. To David, it involved his heart, soul, and mind. It involved his entire being. In verse 1, David says, My heart is not lifted up. In the ancient Hebrew word, world, the concept of the heart uh, was a lot more elevated than it is today. We hear the word heart, and we kind of think of that, that beating muscle in our chest. In the Hebrew world, the concept of the heart 
was at the center of a person's physical, mental, and spiritual life. From a person's heart flows their life. True humility starts in one's heart and flows out of it. What David is saying when he says, my heart is not lifted up, is that he has not put himself above God. To say it differently, the center of David's physical, mental, and spiritual life is to put God above himself. This drives what flows out of his heart. David also goes on to say, my eyes are not raised too high. David is both repeating his first claim and adding to it. The eyes are often described as the windows to one's soul. Here, David is saying his soul is not ambitious because he has put God and others before himself. David's last claim about humility, that he does not occupy himself with things too great or too marvelous for him, is about what he sets his mind to do. He is not chasing after things to satisfy some internal need. He looks to the things of God and the needs of others. This is what David sets his mind to pursue. The portrait being painted of humility here is a beautiful one, and it flows from David's hope in the Lord. David's hope in the Lord produces a humility in his whole being towards God. He is not operating from pride, selfish ambition, and vain pursuits. Now imagine, what if everyone in our world stopped and put God and others first? Would our world look a little different? It would, and it would be beautiful. The world, however, is full of pride. It's full of ambition. It's full of vain pursuits. It's full of people prioritizing themselves over God and others. It's no wonder there's so little hope in our world today. Pride and its derivatives of ambition and vain pursuits produce only the illusion of hope. It is an empty and elusive hope. Do you guys remember that insurance commercial where the guy's got a fishing pole and on the end of his line he's got a dollar and there's some poor person that's trying to get that dollar and every time they get close to that dollar, kind of yanks it. And they almost had it. He's like, almost got it. They never can get it. They strive to obtain it, but they never get it. Every time they get close, the fishermen pulls it a little further out of reach. They never possess that which they desire. And even if someone were to get that dollar, they would just want another dollar. The first would be spent as soon as it was had, or would be found lacking, and I need more. The inflation of our hearts is always growing because of pride never fulfills it. There are a few lies bigger than the ones that start out with, If I could just have this or that, I'd be happy. If I could just have this amount of money, if I could just get this promotion or raise, if I could just get that job, if I could just get that house, if I could just live in this city, if I could just get this person to love me, or if I could only be popular and have people like me. The list goes on. So does the false hope associated with that list. 
Pride is such an empty and elusive hope. It comes from a lie packaged as hope that we can be like God. It comes from the lie that we can do a better job governing our lives than submitting it to God's rule. It is often described as the sin behind all sins. There is no sincere concern for God or others in pride. Adam believed the serpent's lie because he wanted to be like God. In this desire, Adam loved himself more than he loved God or even his wife. In his pride, Adam's heart desired to be like God more than to obey God or care for his wife. His hope became based on a lie instead of his creator. Adam felt that he would be happy if he could just be like God. His pride then led to ambition. Adam watched as Eve took the first bite. He wanted to see what happened. He knew what God had commanded and what God said would happen. Yet he wasn't concerned enough about God to obey him, nor was he concerned enough about Eve to stop her from committing a capital offense. Adam watched his wife taking the first bite, knowing God said she would die. All because Adam wanted to take the second bite. Adam's ambition then led to the vain pursuit of things too great and marvelous for him as he sought to be like God. Chasing a shadow of hope, Adam took that second bite. However, the sin that originated in his heart had originated in his heart before the first fruit was ever plucked from the tree. Pride led to ambition, and ambition led to vain pursuit. The hope of being like God was a lie. Instead of a blessing, it led to a curse, a curse all humanity has been under ever since. The sin originating in our hearts today is no different than the sin originating in Adam and Eve's. It begins believing the lie we can be like God. It begins with the empty and elusive hope that we can govern our lives in such a way that we will be satisfied and happy. Pride leads to ambition, and we set our minds to chase these shadows of hope. There is no catching a shadow. There is no end to the if-I-just statements. We grow tired and weary after chasing happiness from sources that don't last or deliver. I ask you today, what shadows is your heart chasing? Is your soul calm and quiet, or is it exhausted from chasing those shadows? If true humility is about a person having a proper understanding of their worth in relation to God's worth, its natural end is complete dependence upon God. God becomes the source of everything we need for contentment in any situation in which we find ourselves. He is the hope that satisfies. Our complete dependence upon God produces the weaned soul referred to in verse 2. Now, I understand we don't talk in terms of a weaned soul today. The full imagery that's in this poem doesn't quite land the same way on us that it did to those who were sojourning to Jerusalem to worship. So let's take a closer look at it. Because the imagery here that's presented is beautiful. 
Psalm 131.2 says, But I have calmed and quieted my soul, like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. David makes the statement, he has calmed and quieted his soul. My first question when I read that was, how? How has David calmed and quieted his soul? What does it even mean to calm and quiet your soul? And why compare a calm and quiet soul to a weaned child? What, what's David talking about? What David is doing is he is giving us a picture of what it's like to be dependent upon God and the satisfaction our soul finds in that dependence. Now, uh, to be clear, weaning a child in ancient Israel versus modern America looked a a little bit different, okay? Um, For starters, uh, Americans generally like to wean a child around one year of age. I know we we couldn't do it fast enough in our house. Um, In ancient Israel, it usually happened somewhere around three to five years old. You know, they had no such thing as formula, pasteurized cow's milk, and they certainly didn't have the pureed, if I can say that word, goodness of Gerber First Foods. No, no pureed uh, yams. As such, uh, they had to wait a little, just a little bit longer to be, be weaned than what we're used to. Now, if you stop and think about it, how different developmentally is a three- to five-year-old versus a one-year-old? That one-year-old doesn't really know what's going on, and is much more gently transitioned with all these modern products that kind of help us uh, soothe that process a little bit. The three to five-year-olds, though, (laughs) they're much more aware of the situation. They have more complex emotions, and they are going to show them to you. Um, And they're going to complement those those new emotions with an expanding vocabulary. They're going to tell you about it. you know, for these, for these kids, they had a very comfortable routine, and now their world has been completely upended. So, so how did they process it? This is a trial. For that kid, it was suffering. I'm sure that there was anger and crying. There was confusion and pleading. There were likely attempts to obtain something they were no longer allowed to have. And I'm sure there was the feeling of being rejected, not understanding why their mom, who had always been there for them, has stopped. It was upsetting for the child, and I'm sure it wasn't too great for mom either. The child didn't understand that the weaning process is the best thing uh, for him as he went through it. However, he does make it through all those turbulent emotions. He calms and quiets his soul once he's through. He no longer insists on that which he couldn't live without just a short while before. He is still dependent upon his mother. However, now he can rest peacefully in his mother's embrace, no longer seeking that which was essential to him. He trusts his mother in this new phase of life, 
he has matured from one state of dependence into another. The trial this child went through is, it mirrors in a lot of ways the trials we face today. We don't like our particular situation at times. We were comfortable with the way things were before. Now we are angry, confused, upset, finding ways to get back to where we were before. However, at the end of this trial, this child was able to calm and quiet his soul. His trial was to his good, and he benefited from it. He is now satisfied and content. His happiness is restored, and he is able to rest in his mother's arms. How does the Christian calm and quiet their soul in the midst of the storm? The answer is, they humble themselves and hope in the Lord. As Stephen Yuley says, we must fix our mind on this singular truth. God, who is infinitely wise, incomparably powerful, and immeasurably good, is a Father who loves us and knows what's best for us. We calm and quiet our heart when we resign ourselves to His will with respect to present conditions and future events. We don't fight the process like the weaning child does, but we embrace it with an expectant hope based on the goodness of God. We're even to embrace it with joy. As James 1, 2-4 says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Hoping in the Lord looks different for the Christian, both during the trial and after. We find our souls are satisfied by our hope in the Lord. Is there a situation that you're facing today where you need to humble yourself and hope in the Lord? Are you focused on the circumstances and what you think you can do about them? Or is your heart peacefully waiting on the Lord in expectant hope? What can you do to shift the priorities of your heart to allow God to do His good work? Have you asked your brothers and sisters in Christ how they can come alongside you? Now, trials look different for those who do not hope in the Lord. Yet, there's a lot of it that looks the same. The feelings can look similar. However, the hope is not sure. It is empty and elusive. Like the child who is weaning, there's not an expected resolution to that suffering. There's only the here and now. Now, I've been a Christian since I was seven years old. I've been through a lot of trials, but I've not been through a lot of trials without God. Even before I was a Christian, I clearly knew God is real and felt his love working to good, even in bad situations. So it's a little hard for me to speak about something which I have little experience in, which is having no hope in the Lord and trying to go through a trial. So I found a news article uh, written by an atheist in South Africa 
that tried to answer the question, what hope is there without God? Now his, his, his answer pretty much came down, came down to this, and I'm quoting him here. Whether or not a person is broadly speaking contented or discontented depends first of all on character, and secondly, to a lesser extent, circumstance. So character and circumstance, that's what it comes down to in a, in a trial for someone that doesn't hope in God. In, in, in other words, your hope depends on your own character and your own situation. Now remember what hope is. Waiting for an extended period of time for an expected result. We trust in the goodness of God. If any of us thinks that good, we have good character apart from Christ, we are deceiving ourselves. At one point, all of us has lied, stolen, looked in lust, or all the above. As a, as a dad, I learned very quickly that I didn't have to teach any of my boys to lie, steal, cheat, bite, hit. Uh, I'd teach them not to. They were born with the ability to do those things. All of us are born with the ability to do those things. Our character, apart from God, is based almost exclusively on our self-interest. It's selfish. Do you trust your own character when you're angry, confused? Do you trust it enough when you're suffering to hope in it? You know what you're really like in the recesses of your heart. And if hope is only in the here and now, based on your circumstances, exactly what is your expected resolution? In the closing argument, the author finally admits there's no hope apart from God, as he tries to argue against God when he says, for after all, it is better to have no hope. It's better to have no hope than to believe in God, was his point. So he admits that there is no hope apart from God. And he's wrong. You cannot have a calm and quiet soul during a storm without hope that is outside of yourself. It is better to hope in the Lord. A hope by any other name is empty and elusive. Several weeks ago, uh, Doug Pollock played a YouTube video uh, right here of famed atheist Penn Gillette, who's from the magician duo of Penn and Teller. And Penn was speaking on how much respect he had for a Christian who took the time to explain the gospel to him on an airplane. Now this is kind of his thoughts, and he's reflecting afterwards out loud. And he just asked the question out loud, how much... You had to hate someone if you knew the way to eternal life but wouldn't share it with them. He stated that most of the Christians he runs into did not love him enough to share the gospel. In Psalm 131.3, which we can put on the board there, uh, David stops addressing God and speaks to the nation of Israel when he says, 
O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. David immediately goes from talking to God about his soul being calm and quiet as a result of his hope in the Lord to encouraging others to share in that same hope. He doesn't wait a second. He immediately makes the statement after explaining its impact to him personally. Christian, who can you love better this week by sharing with them your hope in the Lord? I'd encourage you to write down at least one name, pray about it, and share the gospel. To not be a Christian that walks by a pendulette and says nothing. Perhaps you're here today and you've not experienced the hope of the Lord. You've been chasing an empty and elusive hope. Your soul is anything but calm and quiet and you don't know what to do. Perhaps no one has loved you enough to share the gospel with you. If this is you, I would like to offer this passage for you to consider. And it's a pretty long one, so we're not going to put it up there. I'll just read it to you. It says, do nothing. It's from Philippians 2, 3 through 8. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interest of others. Having this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The good news is that the story of the garden didn't end with just a curse. There was also a promise that one day the offspring of Eve would crush the head of that lying serpent. Christ is the offspring of Eve. He is the promised one who humbled himself to death on a cross to pay the penalty of the curse for our sin and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Christ paid the wages of our sin in his death and through his death and resurrection provided us the free gift of God, eternal life. The Gospel of Mark tells us to repent and believe in the Gospel. Jesus tells us in Matthew 18.3, which I think we have this one as well, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. We must humble ourselves and have a childlike faith to be saved. Do you see the need for a hope outside yourself? The worship team wants to, to start coming up. Um, you know, when I experienced those two nights long ago, I didn't think of that first night the way I did today, or do today. I woke up from the floor that morning, got ready, and went to work, tired and depleted. My soul was anything but calm or quiet that day. It took the second night, in a moment of grace, to show me just how poor my prideful attitude had been. 
I prayed deeply for my son, myself, and my wife that night. My soul was calm and quiet, and my heart filled with joy, in spite of my sinful nature and circumstances. As I prayed, I hoped for things that were a long way off. Romans 8, 24 through 25 tells us, Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. I hope in the Lord. Church, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Let's pray. Father God, we are a wicked and sinful people. Lord, we go through our days plan them and we pursue things of our heart and they're not always the things that you would have for us Lord I pray that your spirit who you've given us to help us live the life that you've called us to be obedient to helps us to humble ourselves and pursue you with our whole heart Lord I pray that those who haven't experienced the hope of the Lord Lord, that they come to that hope, that they trust in the goodness of God, that no matter what their situation or how dire their suffering is, Lord, that they know that you are good, you are trustworthy, and you are working all things according to your good and gracious will. Father, we thank you, and we ask that we would go to this community this week and share this hope with others. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.